last week. Uh, I went to South Carolina to help with my parents. My brother was out of town and uh, my sister needed help. So I knew I was gonna go. I just didn't realize I was gonna have to stay so many days. Uh, So a number of you can relate. You've had loved ones or parents or even spouses that have dealt with serious illness as they have aged. And so mom and dad had a week where they were really struggling and persevering and it was kind of an intense week. Uh, They ended up being kind of tough but then improving on Saturday and Sunday was a lot better. So Sunday morning, I take my mother out on the back deck and she had been real anxious and restless and really imagining people in the house me trying to make sure she knew who I was or where she was, her mind clouded and confused, really fractured. It's a hard thing to walk through with her. And yet this morning, on Sunday morning, she was peaceful. And she looks at me this Lord's Day morning and with this serene look on her face, she says... God hath not promised, sky is always blue. Flower-strewn pathways all our lives through. God has not promised, sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. God has not promised, we shall not know, toil and temptation, struggle and woe. God has not told us, we shall not bear many a burden, many a care. God has not promised smooth roads and wide, swift, easy travel needing no guide. Never a mountain rocky and steep, never a river turbid and deep. But God hath promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. In the midst of her confusion, not being able to put sentences together through the week, that comes out. And I think of Jesus looking at Simon in the prior passage, saying, look at this woman, you know. That's the Savior she knows, who's been gracious to her throughout life, who supports her in this trial, and who she wants to talk about, wants to talk about. And it's a devotion arising from a sense of brokenness and need that makes Jesus even more precious. And isn't that the case for us? And I look at that, I'm meditating on the passage I need to preach on today, and it just seemed to me a wonderful illustration of the point I want to get across this morning. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Great little text, Luke 8, 1 through 3. And this is the last little portion of our section, 7-1 to 8-3. 
Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the 12 were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Can't imagine. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others, many others, many other women who provided for them out of their means. And the grass withers and the flowers fade. And this word endures forever. And so it's a summary statement. You know, we kind of breeze through it when we read, but it's a beautiful statement. And you see in Luke up to this point, this is a third summary statement. 4, 14, and 15 was one. And 4.34, excuse me, 4.43 and 44 is another one. And now we have this one. And this gives an overall pattern of Jesus's ministry. So we think of like the scope or the pattern. What was Jesus about as he ministered? How did he go about ministering to people? And so as we look at this, just think, who is Jesus? And what kind of faith should we have in him? Because you recall that in this section, that's what Luke is especially wanting to imprint on our minds. Remember, Jesus' identity is questioned, and therefore the kind of faith we're to have in him is considered, and it's here too in this little section. I have four points. The first is the places Jesus went. The second is the proclamation Jesus made. The third is the people Jesus reached. And the fourth is the provision Jesus received. All this, the pattern of Jesus' way of doing ministry. So first, the places Jesus went. It just says, soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages. (sighs) Through the cities and the villages. And it's this imperfect verb. It doesn't talk about, you know, pinpointing a certain place to go. It's almost meandering and wandering and traveling and touring from one place to the other. He visits cities, larger settlements, and villages, smaller towns. His purpose is to go to the mall, as many as he can during this little block of time. He doesn't bypass or overlook or ignore the little villages in favor of the larger cities. He doesn't sit back and strategize on the most effective places to go. He doesn't evaluate which is more effective and which is less. He just wanders around preaching in these areas from one to the other, big or small. And I just, I just like it. And I wanted to mention it. He doesn't do things according to common wisdom. It, common wisdom is good, but he's just not, he's not following leadership wisdom here. Uh, his, his, you know, his brothers, if you recall, in, in John's gospel, chapter seven, his brothers didn't believe in him during his earthly ministry. And they look at him one day and go, look, if, I'm paraphrasing, if, if, you wanna be a, if you wanna start a public movement, you gotta leave Galilee and go to Judea and preach to the people that matter. Like, go, go to Jerusalem now. And Jesus looked at him and said, my time has not yet come. It, And so in our passage, Jesus is not only investing in Galilee, which is a place people look down on. They just look down on Galilee, but he's going to small towns, a little 
mud huts of a few different families in Galilee. So in Luke 9.51, we're gonna have a shift in the gospel. And in 9.51, it's a very important verse, a stirring verse, really, and you know it. It says, Luke is explaining when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. I mean, he knows the target of his ministry. He has to confront the leadership in Jerusalem, and he knows what's going to happen. They're gonna betray him, sentence him, and kill him at the cross, but God's going to use that in his plan to redeem you of your sin at the cross, but right now is not the time. Right now, he's happy to meander around Galilee and go to big settlements and small settlements, and why is that? The other summary statement in verse 43 of chapter four says this is the sovereign purpose of God. Like, God's sending him to these places. He's obeying God's limitations and God's directions and God's telling him, wander around and take that seed and sow it in big places and small places, liberally sow it. So you and I and our world speaks of the importance of the big cities. The global population is moving to the big cities. It's mushrooming, demographics are clear and we must think through how to reach the big cities and yet, At the same time, we have Jesus going to the big places and the small places. I love the humility of Jesus. He's the most important man who ever lived. No one holds a candle to him. And yet he's quite happy to show up in a mud village with a few families and give them his personal presence. Like him there. Like you are that important to me. And really his ministry itself reflects the gospel grace, doesn't it? He was perfectly happy to leave his home in glory in the control center of the universe and come down into our broken, sinful, weak world and minister to non-influential, unimportant people, the lowly, the poor. He goes down, 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 and that reflects the gospel itself. It's the pattern of ministry and it encourages me. God has sovereign placed you and I in this town, in this all-America city, in this smaller city. And his reminder to us is, these are your people. This is your place. You invest here. You reflect me here. I have those I want to know me here. It also just reassures me the risen Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever that he shows up to your little homes your little homes that you may think are insignificant by his word and his spirit to give you his presence and draw you to him, your home. The second, the proclamation Jesus made, what did Jesus do in these cities and villages? Well, he went to them proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. It's a beautiful phrase. Uh, He preaches the gospel. He goes preaching the gospel. He does more than that, doesn't he? In this section even, we've seen that he does more than that. John the Baptist asked, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Remember how Jesus responded to him. Jesus responded to his messengers and said, well, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. 
But it's significant that the last in the list of Acts, proving he's the Messiah, that he's gonna send those emissaries back to John with, it's not the dead are raised up, which would be the last and the ultimate one for you and I. But rather, after saying the dead are raised up, he turns to them and says, and the poor have good news preached to them. That's the high point. That's the high point. In fact, the others are really, when it's all said and done, signs pointing to the gospel and results of the wider influence of the gospel. The most important thing you and I need is the gospel. And so in the three summary statements so far in Luke, what's specifically mentioned is that Jesus goes around, the pattern of his ministry is he goes around preaching the gospel. And so to bring good news in the world of that day, it's a great word. We get the word evangelize from that. But to bring good news in the world of that day meant to announce a victory in battle. Like there's a big war (laughs) and you won the war and you got to announce it. Like people wanted to be that guy that got to run to the next village and announce it. In fact, Greco-Roman authors describe the bearer of such good news this way. His face shines. His spear is decked with laurels. His head is covered with a crown. He swings a branch of palms. Joy fills the city. I mean, who would not want to proclaim such a news of victory? It's a great way to think of our opportunity to preach good news to people. And so it's this exuberant heralding that the enemy has been defeated, that victory has been won. It's a a fact. The life-changing event, the rescue, the deliverance from peril has already happened. There's nothing left to do, and that's why it's good news. There's nothing more to do. It's all been done. I'm reporting this to you. So what we say is the gospel isn't some advice to be followed. The gospel isn't an act to be accomplished. Rather, the gospel is an announcement to be received. We receive it by faith and joy. And it's reinforced by the gospel's content here. It's the gospel of the kingdom of God, which is just a great designation of the gospel. The gospel of the kingdom. See, the gospel, in the gospel that Jesus proclaims, that he's the long-awaited king that has finally now arrived. We've always known we needed him, and he's here. He's the one, and so the very shortest summary of the gospel, somebody asks you the gospel in an elevator, the shortest summary is Jesus the Christ. He's the king, and he's here. And so Jesus proclaims the good news of himself. Like Jesus is the true king who's here to undo the works of the evil one, overcome all aspects of the fall. And so even in our little section we have in that beautiful story of the centurion, he's healed the guy who's sick and at the point of death. But then he raises the widow of Nain's son who's already dead. Like how stirring the king stops them taking him to the cemetery. And then even harder to do, and that's the import of this, even harder to do is what he does for the sinful woman. What he does for the sinful woman in front of everybody is says, your many sins, they are forgiven. Because your worst suffering 
And the root and cause of all your suffering is your sin. And that's the focal point of the gospel so that another wonderful summary statement of the gospel, if you're in that elevator, what's the gospel? God saves sinners. It's God who saves sinners through King Jesus. And so King Jesus proclaims the victory, you notice, as if it's already a reality. But he hadn't yet been to the cross yet. But when you proclaim the gospel, it's done. And so how stirring for us to say it was such a done deal, so assured that he proclaimed it as if it had already been achieved when he hadn't even gotten to Jerusalem yet. And that's why Paul can look at you and say, if you're in Christ today, you're already glorified. The chain of salvation, you were glorified, he said. That's where you are in glory. You've just come down to earth to live for a while. King Jesus knows what it's going to require when he preaches, but nobody else really does at this point. He knows he's going to be made sin. He's going to become the curse. He's gonna suffer the wrath, but it's by doing that that he conquers. He rises from the dead because he satisfied it and broke the poison of the evil one across this world. That's his victory. Only this way does he win his victory, secure his kingdom, and rescue his people from the enemy. So this gospel Jesus is announcing, they can't fully understand it yet, but this is the victory that heals our world, such that another definition of the gospel we can use, more of a cosmic definition of the gospel is the storyline of scripture, which is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The gospel is from beginning to end, God healing all things and us included. In the midst of everything else we do, we preach a joyful gospel in the midst of a despairing world. It's the pattern of Jesus' ministry, and it's our pattern too. And we preach it because it's already accomplished in the resurrection of Christ. And third, the people Jesus reached. Jesus traveled around with two groups of people. First, he traveled with the 12 who were with him. And that's the apostles that he chose from among the larger group of disciples. They were with him. It's similar to what Mark says. He called them that they might be with him. The most important thing for you today is that you spend time with, with Jesus. He rubs off on us and shapes us and molds us. Such that in Acts, you know, when the Sanhedrin is amazed by Peter and John and they're preaching, they understand that they're uneducated common men. They look at him and go, how did they get this wisdom and courage? And they note they've been with Jesus. Chapter nine, Jesus is gonna send them out to preach on their own. But before they do that, they're first with him. And that's you too, the pattern of Jesus's ministry. Do you, do you see this pattern then? He's the king of the kingdom. He's here to change the world and yet he invests most of his time and effort into 12 guys and they're not, they're not a big deal. They have all kind of foibles and failings. They're just run of the mill, not standouts, not opening any doors to anybody, to the Jewish elites. But 
Jesus invests his time principally with those 12 ordinary guys. He's showing the pattern of his ministry that his grace, the glory of his grace transforms ordinary sinful people. He delights in it. The pattern of his ministry limits himself to a few in order to reach the many. John MacArthur said it great. He said, concentration leads to multiplication. That's a good one for our homes, isn't it? In our church, our community, concentration leads to multiplication. Jesus goes deep with a few in order to go wide to the many. It's a model that's part of Lawndale's DNA since its inception. You would say if you're a longtime member of Lawndale, that's in the DNA of this church. Tim Fortner's strength is here. We go deep with a few in order to go wide with the many. It's easy to be superficial in the things of the Lord, to have a cursory acquaintance with the things of the Lord. We want to go deep as a people. It's as we go deep as a people that we have a greater influence on others. And there's a second group that traveled with him. And these were some women. And they parallel the 12. They're part of Jesus' ministry team. It was common in the day for wealthy women to support a traveling rabbi who was noteworthy. But it was unusual, almost unheard of, that the women would travel along with the rabbi. Maybe scandalous even. In fact, like other ancient cultures and famous teachers, the Jewish rabbis have a low regard for women. They doubted that they were capable of learning, disdained to spend time teaching them, forbade that they be taught in public even by their husbands, but not so scripture, and especially not so Christ. And so Luke's the gospel writer that emphasizes especially Jesus' sympathy and esteem for women. In fact, some have called Luke's gospel the gospel of womanhood. And this is the gospel of Mary's faithfulness and her exalted song, of Elizabeth's faithfulness and her joyful song, and of Anna's devoted spreading the word of Christ to those around her, of the widow of Nain and the beautiful faith example of the sinful woman. Do you see this woman? And later of Mary and Martha, not even to speak of the parables unique to Luke that feature women. Luke depicts the depth and piety and love of these women and presents them as models to instruct us. And later he record, it's the same Mary Magdalene and Joanna who are still with Jesus at his cross and at his resurrection. And these women disciples remain close to Jesus throughout. There's not a time when they're not with him. It's ongoing, their ministry. They, they stay at the cross. They mark the tomb. They return to anoint him, and they behold his resurrection. In fact, the early Christian confession, 1 Corinthians 15, according to the scriptures, Christ died, he was buried, he rose, he appeared. Those four elements of the gospel in Luke, they're the ones who see them all. In fact, the angels send the women off as witnesses to the fearful apostles. And so the pattern of Jesus' ministry, the apostles of Jesus' office bearers, they're the shepherds of his kingdom movement, yet Jesus demonstrates the indispensable leadership of faithful women for his kingdom advance. And we know how utterly necessary in our local body, you godly women are to the health, growth, and effectiveness of our ministry here. Longdale ladies, 
You teach Sunday school and care for people. We're immensely grateful for your ministry in our local body. And this leads to the final point, the provision Jesus received. See, Jesus shows this extraordinary grace to these women who now follow him around in his preaching ministry. He, he healed these women of evil spirits and infirmities. And they're women like the widow of Nain and they're women like the sinful woman who anointed Jesus' feet. They're women whom Jesus has forgiven much and helped much and so now they love much. There's no reluctance and no compulsion. They know they've been given a grace that's bountiful and they want to bountifully give. That's what you see here. And among them is Mary Magdalene. She's from a little fishing village by Galilee called Magdala. It's very small. She had seven demons. Her life was ruined. She was done. It was over in slavery and bondage. Yet Jesus looked at her, paid special attention to her, and called her from darkness into light. We don't know what happened to Joanna and Susanna, but we do know that they experienced the greatest deliverance of all, and that is the forgiveness of sins. But look at Joanna. Joanna is described as the wife of Chusa, and he's one of Herod's administrative officials. He's maybe even the manager of his estate. So he's a powerful man, an influential man. And so you got Herod Antipas in Galilee, in the north where Jesus is. He's the very guy that imprisoned John the Baptist. He's opposing the kingdom of God in Galilee. He's gonna kill John the Baptist and yet the gospel of King Jesus has invaded his very household. He can't keep it out. He can't put up walls to the power of King Jesus as he undoes the works of the evil one. And we see this countless times throughout our world, in our families, in our lives. But this powerful man, Chusa, this member of Herod's court, he permits his wife to follow around Jesus and support him out of her means. It must mean that Chusa himself has become a believer, at risk to himself. And so we see the gospel as a proclamation, beautiful proclamation, and it's God's power for change. It changes a demon-possessed woman. It changes an aristocratic woman and her husband. It changes this unnamed, nondescript woman, Susanna, whom we know nothing more about. And it changes this big group of women who are part of that, who have experienced similar things, recipients of Jesus's boundless, abundant grace in the gospel and follow Jesus around. How do they respond? Well, they respond like the sinful woman who anoints Jesus' feet. It just was a common thing. There's an upheaval in their lives. Their lives turn upside down. They offer it all. They enter Jesus' upside down kingdom that we looked at in his sermon on the plain. They leave everything Everything is at his disposal. They follow Jesus and become part of his ministry team, not knowing where it's going, and give generously and sacrificially of their possessions to support Jesus' life-giving mission for the sake of other people who are like them. And John MacArthur says it well. He goes, those impacted by Jesus' ministry supported Jesus' ministry 
It's the pattern of Jesus's ministry. And that word for provided is the word diakoneo. It's the word we get Christian service. And even the word that ends up becoming the word for deacon. These women are engaging in a deacon-like ministry with Jesus, full of the gospel, laying their lives down in service. And what we see in them is this brief summary statement is the gospel is a proclamation of what Jesus did. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation and the gospel is also a pattern for living. And we sometimes speak of a gospel-shaped life that the gospel actually molds us and makes us different. We start looking like the gospel. These women are reflecting the gospel by upending their lives and radically pouring out their belongings for the good of others. It kind of looks like 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He who was rich out of his riches became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. MacArthur says it well, why do we serve God? We serve God to mirror the same sacrificial love and grace that God mirrored to us in Christ. You and I get to practice mirroring Jesus's self-giving for the sake of the world. Little Christs, the aroma of Christ. And so we ask, how are we doing with that, you know? Is something of that spontaneous, like joy-filled sacrifice these ladies in the way they could do it, is that showing forth in my speech, thoughts, actions? In a minute, we're gonna confess Philippians 2, 5 through 11, an early creed of the church. And, and, the, and the creed urges us to have a mindset that mirrors Jesus's gospel descent to the cross. And so the urging summons for you and I is, through this passage, have we experienced this abounding grace? Are we giving ourselves abundantly to others? Or in our lifestyle, does it look like we've received a sparing grace because we give ourselves sparingly to others? And Philippians 2 urges us and says, give yourselves abundantly because God has given himself lavishly to you in the Lord Jesus Christ for the upbuilding and growth of his church and the good of the world. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this beautiful message, beautiful passage. We praise you for these women who received so much grace at the hands of Jesus and that they in turn wanted to pass that along to those in that needy area. And we pray that we would be those alive to gospel grace for the good of the world. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Please stand.